Welcome to the resurrection of DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. At the dawn of the millennium, DMOU was one of the most innovative distance learning platforms in the destination marketing organization space. During that time, we interviewed over 150 of the best and brightest in our field, as well as those from complementary disciplines, sharing innovative ideas to drive our industry forward. Alas, business got in the way and it just became impossible to maintain a three a month, 60 minute format distributed on, ready for this, CD and cassette. How quaint, but it rocked for its day. So we set DMOU aside and focused on our clients, but we never lost affection for DMOU, and we would always smile fondly when our DMO friends would remind us that they had been subscribers of the original series. Well, DMOU is back, and it's back with a new twist on a cool idea. This time around, no more subscriptions or one-off CD sales. DMOU is free. No more CDs. DMOU is now a podcast. And no more 60-minute programs. We'll talk with our guests for as long as it takes for them to inspire you. The new format is three questions and a bonus round. Now, some of these podcasts may go 15 minutes. Some could go 30. We just don't know. And that's going to be the fun part of bringing DMOU back. We're charting new territory, and that's what makes DMO pros tick. So strap in, engage thrusters, and enjoy this ride. DMOU is back and sponsored today by our friends at Digital Edge, an agency committed to providing destination marketing organizations across the globe with cutting-edge digital marketing solutions, off-the-charts creativity, and meetings marketing expertise that really you can't find anywhere else. Digital Edge's co-founders, two former DMO professionals, have taken their unique experiences working for CVBs on both sales and marketing sides to create an agency that specializes in meetings marketing. Maya Shirley and their team provide DMOs a knowledgeable, innovative, and fresh approach for reaching and engaging your partners. You can learn more at digitaledge.marketing. And now, on to our show. Our guest today is George Zugros, the executive director of the Wisconsin Arts Board, the state agency which nurtures creativity, cultivates expression, promotes the arts, supports the arts in education, stimulates community and economic development, and serves as a resource for people of every culture and heritage. George works in the creative industries, Wisconsin Art Board's members and staff, and the governor the state legislature to create funding programs and services to meet the needs of the people of Wisconsin. He is a member of the Governor's Council on Tourism and the Cultural Coalition of Wisconsin. He is also chair of the National Creativity Network. George Zugros, welcome to DMOU. Thank you, Bill. Good to be here. It's great to have you on. We've been friends for way more years than than I can even count. And the rare times that we get to actually break bread together, I am always fascinated with your take on arts, culture, but more importantly, how arts and culture are far more meaningful in not just fulfilling our soul, but also driving an innovative entrepreneurial economy. And so I'd love to kind of dive into that side of it here because, you know, I think those of us on the DMO side are really good at saying, well, you know, we we support the arts and culture. I mean, it, it shows up in all of our strategic plans. It shows up in our marketing plans. But at the end of the day, a DMO's involvement in activation and inclusion of the arts is oftentimes iffy at best. I mean, I think we talk a good game, but I'm not even sure that we understand the power of arts and culture in telling our story. So my first of my three questions for you is where does the real synergy between the work of the arts and tourism manifest? In a conversation we had recently, you said, you know, Richard Florida calls it the quality of place and arts clearly is a component of that. And I, I would 
argue, and I think you would too, a big component of that, but what is that quality of place and how do the arts and tourism connect? So first, let me take the arts responsibility and that tourism arts um, connection and say that oftentimes the artists, whether they're singers, dancers, theater people, they're so busy doing their work that they often don't raise their heads to, to look towards the DMO. And so on the art side, they got to take responsibility of knowing that there's more to the work than just the art. And so they've got to, to go out and partner with the DMOs as well. But the notion of quality of place is a great one because, you know, we often talk about quality of life, but what we know from Richard Florida's rise of the creative class is these generations that we're in now, people don't look to go find a job and stay there for their 35 year career, retire and get a nice gold watch. What they do is they look for the places they want to live and then they go there and hope that there's a thick labor market so that if they decide to change jobs, they can certainly do that. But the place they live is paramount. And so Florida, when he discussed quality of place, he said, what's there, the natural and the built environment, who's there? And really the most diverse group of people you can, and I would argue the most creative diverse group of people you could have. And then what's going on there? And right, so we we in the arts and, and the tourism folks share that space by saying, let's promote what's happening, whether it's the bike trail that's there or it's the thing that's going on in the theater on a Saturday night. You know, it's interesting. I was talking with a, a DMO CEO who you know is one of the most whip smart out there. And, and I was kind of bemoaning the fact that that DMOs do a pretty sensational job of promoting what's going on up until about seven o'clock right. in the evening, and then it all falls apart. And and he he hit me with this kind of you know, just just you know light bulb moment. He says, "Well, that's because the really creative people go to work at six or seven o'clock, and we don't, and right. you know, we work nine to five, and so." Our workday does not coincide with a creative class workday, and we don't have those connections, which is why I loved what Chattanooga did a number of years ago and actually engaged somebody to be on the street in the nighttime economy and make those connections for the DMO and for the nighttime economy. What she ended up doing um, over her span of two or three years uh, in market was to actually get the arts and nighttime entertainment uh, community to work together rather than work against each other. And I think that that's really where where I think DMOs can have a, a real place. Well, I think that's true. And then I think there are projects like what happened in Paducah, Kentucky. You know, the, they went out and advertised in arts magazines across the nation and said, Los Angeles, New York, Paducah, San Francisco, one of these communities wants more artists. And it was because West Paducah was a blighted area and they wanted to make sure that it was renovated and came back to life. I think everybody understands that the arts go in early, use a lot of sweat equity and then make places cool and wonderful to be. And again, at the other end of that is when the, the tourism folks get something new to promote, right? So the interesting thing about the project in Paducah was that instead of offering the artists a rentable space, they offered them places to buy. Um, and so the difference, of course, is really interesting because often, and it's happened all around, the artists go in early and then they price themselves out of the uh, neighborhood. 
because the neighborhood gets better and better and they can't afford to rent anymore. So they have to move. So going in and having ownership in the community made all the difference in the world. And so what did they expect? First, the artists go in, sweat equity, they make it happen. But then what did they expect to happen? Coffee shops, restaurants, all the kind of cool things that make those new areas alive. Um, and as you say, part of the nighttime economy as well as the daytime economy. So there are lots of really great ideas out there. So that's really where I think this edition of, of DMAU really wants to explore is because the creatives, the arts culture, the co-creators, as Peter Kajiyama calls them, because they're not looking outward and identifying ways to market or sell, I mean, they're creating. How do we as DMOs, you know, step into that space? And so why should communities invest in arts and creativity? I mean, maybe that's our role rather than try to chase down the creatives and say, hey, 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 we have this opportunity for you. Maybe we are more in the DMO space, more apt to be able to move the needle by convincing communities, corporations at all to invest in the arts and creativity. So everybody wants to know what ROI is. What's your pitch when you go to a community or to a corporation to say, this is what it is, and this is the power of the arts? I think there are multiple things. And I think you started off well by saying the arts and culture are powerful and important for communities because they're of the hearts, minds, and spirits of the people, right? So fundamentally, it's human expression. And so that we set aside because hopefully everybody understands that. But if they don't, they need to hear it right up front. Secondly, we always talk about the economic impact. In presentations we've made over the years, we've um, had a picture of Oliver Twist with the international symbol of no through him. Because I think everybody thinks that the arts are a charity and in, as such comes to uh, people who are going to fund the arts and say, please, sir, may we have some more um, and we'll, right. we'll be good. It'll be fine. And even on the art side, people are apologetic as to asking, but they have no reason to be apologetic. The National Endowment for the Arts and the Bureau of Economic Analysis have determined that the arts and culture sector in the United States is an $800 billion industry, right? So there's a number that people are going to be surprised to hear, but it's an $800 billion industry. And that's everything from, of course, Hollywood and Broadway to the individual artist who's working um, somewhere across the nation, kicking out stuff and um, selling it through their own studio. The arts have that story to tell now when it's the preeminent economic shop in the world, the Bureau of Economic Analysis at the U.S. Department of Commerce, it bears a lot more weight than if just the Arts Board or any other arts organization were to say it. We talked about thriving communities in the example of Paducah. I mean, clearly the arts have played that role. And also, um, I think, Bill, when you were saying, how do, you, how do you get that story out? There's an authentic story that gets told, right? So it's if it's Memphis, we're probably talking about music and we're probably talking about Elvis. If we're talking about New Orleans, we're probably talking about Cajun food, right? So there are different stories to be told in different places. And coming up with the authentic story is an important thing to do. Then you've got the notion of investing in the arts in the schools. 
why? Because we want great human beings coming out of those schools. But moreover, we want kids who are prepared for the 21st and 22nd century, if we could start talking about the 22nd. Because we work, the Arts Board works with Sir Ken Robinson, who has the number one TED Talk among all the TED Talks, and it's called Do Schools Kill Creativity? And you won't be surprised to learn that his answer is yes. Yeah. In his conversation, what he says is, for example, the kids who went into kindergarten last year, right, so 2018, are going to exit the workforce in 2078, you know, if we're all lucky to still be able to retire. And so as they exit the workforce (laughs) in 2078, his question is, do we know what that looks like? Anybody know what 2078 looks like? And the challenge is, as far as education is concerned, we keep cutting the arts and we keep increasing standards for things like reading and math and we keep arguing that we need to have stem taught and we have no no more room for the arts but it's the arts and learning through the arts that help us understand patterns help us to connect the dots help us to deal with ambiguity right so the ambiguity of not knowing what the future looks like the arts play a strong role in that as i say cutting the arts you know we we say we want our kids to be less obese so that, then we cut Fayed. We want them to be more literate and we cut the librarians and we want them to be more creative and we cut the arts. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes we're our own worst enemies as it relates to that. But, you know, what we hope on the other end of all of this, and this leads to the last point, it's, it's about talent, right? What's the shortage out there right now? It's talent shortage. We need the people who are going to be the, the amazing entrepreneurs and the highly skilled workforce necessary to do whatever the 21st century creative economy says we need to do. Whether it's the artists themselves as a business. I often talk about a a group called the Potter Shed in um, Shell Lake, Wisconsin. Potter Shed is a guy who started throwing pots years ago, then his son joined him, and then they decided they were going to have a gallery of their work, then they're going to have a gallery of other people's work. Then they decided, well, let's have a cafe and then let's, you know, do performances. And then they'd have this little thing where they send ceramics. You know, those ceramics that have sayings on them that you uh-huh. find in catalogs. Yeah. Right. They're coming out of that shop in Shell Lake, Wisconsin. Yeah. And they're using the same inventory system that Toyota uses. So you can tell that they've got a, a volume business going on there. Yeah, really. But again, so if we're talking about talent and and business like that coming directly out of the arts or creating the quality of place where somebody wants to come and live and do their work, that's a role that the arts have to play. And to do that, I think there's an assumption, especially in the business community often, that says, well, they're going to do it anyway. They love it, right? You don't need to give them any resources. They're going to do it anyway. Well, the answer is, yes, it's human expression. And yes, there will be certain people that will do it. But there isn't any reason why it should not be invested in. Uh, And in fact, there are many reasons, as I've just articulated, to be investing in so that you get the best quality arts and cultural sector in your community, your state, your country, whatever the case may be. 
you know, in my question, I asked about ROI because that always comes up. People go, well, what's the ROI of my investment, whether yeah. it's government, whether it's corporations, whether it's any, any everybody wants to know ROI. And it's right. funny, I, I was at a conference recently where Jack Johnson, the uh, advocacy guy from uh, Destinations International, was saying, you know, we've been pushing this ROI thing for a long time and it's just not getting any right. purchase. He goes, so we, we really need to re-communicate the value of what we as DMOs do to show that it's a core value or, or a, a, a core role right. of government that, you know, they go, well, police and fire, that's core. No, actually, <laughs> tourism, marketing, economic development is just as core so we can get the money to pay for police and fire and all the other core uh, services that are being provided. Right. You said something I thought was interesting, though, is that for you, ROI is not return on investment. It's return on imagination. Tell me more about that. Absolutely. For, for the things that we talked about, if you're investing in kids and that kid is productive and creative in society, the return on investment is more important than any number you're going to ever put on that. The Arts Council of Winston-Salem years ago had a wonderful campaign that said it very succinctly. They showed a bullet. The bottom of the bullet was a shell casing. The top of the bullet was a crayon. And the tagline was, kids are going to express themselves one way or the other. So the return on imagination wow. is having kids who are engaged, who are going to grow up learning doesn't mean they're going to become artists necessarily, but they're not going to also be skipping school because they're engaged in the school building. And I should say, Bill, you know, when we talk, especially from the National Creativity Network level, we talk about creativity in all its forms. So the arts for sure. But if the in the school building, we stop talking about we should fund STEM more and this less and that, that have that conversation and have the conversation that says, we should fund creativity in our schools. Well, then we have a conversation that says the arts are important, but so is science and so is math. And so is all, are all these things where human beings express their creativity in very, very different ways. So the return on imagination is investing in imagination, creativity, and the word that business people like to use all the time, which is innovation. But you don't get to innovation without imagination and creativity. Great point. And I think one needs only to point to Steve Jobs and Apple. I mean, that was yep. innovation, but it was also art. I mean, it's one of the reasons that, that people flock to those products is because they are pieces of art. You hold one of those for the first time. And I remember holding the first iPhone in my hand. I mean, I'd seen the ads. I mean, it, right. it it's another mobile device. I mean, who cares? It's 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 a slick Palm Pilot, right? And but you actually yep. picked it up and you went, wow, this, it feels different. And then and that's the art side. So I want to go deeper into the connection between the arts, innovation, as you said, and entrepreneurship. You know, you had me totally enthralled at the work that's being done by the National Creativity Network, which you chair. I don't want to, for a second, diminish the power of the concept, but how do you build corporate? and government support for the arts through this synergistic relationship? First of all, it's a revelation to some government and business leaders that the arts are important to entrepreneurship and business. And to do that, sometimes when you say the word art, they just shut it down. 
right? They just say, I'm not going to think about this. It's nice. It's fluffy. It's something that, you know, my kids will go to and participate in, but it's not for me. Well, I, I would suggest that in any community across the world, there are challenges to be had, whether it's at-risk youth or blighted areas or, you, you know, you name it, where we keep trying to use the same solutions that we've always tried. And of course, what have they always done? They've always failed. We always like to say, bring the artist to the table. Here, here's a really simple one. You're going to wreck your, your main street and you're going to put in a brand new um, street, but you're also going to put in a bus shelter and you're going to put in lights and other fixtures, etc. right? Well, you can go ahead and do that and do it as a utilitarian thing. No aesthetic to it whatsoever. Or you can choose to make those things unique to that area by hiring an artist to do it. The cost differential isn't great, but back to the return on imagination, the return on imagination is maybe that neighborhood becomes known for those, those amenities that have been built in. Often we have to go to uh, government leaders and talk to them about the return of the numbers because they don't understand the return of the numbers. The other thing is to explain what you mean when you say to them, imagination, creativity, and innovation. The way that I like to say it is somebody had to look at an ear of corn and decide that that could be fuel, right? Some, somebody had to say, we could do something with that. Right. So that's the imagination. Creativity is doing it, right? Figuring out how to make fuel out of that ear of corn. And then the innovation comes from making more barrels with less corn or even picking something else to make the fuel from. And that's a, that's a process. That's a, that's a thought process that is all about the arts. If somebody goes to a, a theatrical production, Bill, and this is one of the, the real challenges in the arts field, you go to something at Overture, you know, some, some theater, and you sit down and you watch the performance, and you're just blown out of your seat. People who are sitting there often think, well, that was magic. They don't understand the work that went into that. They don't understand the training that went into that. They don't understand yeah. those things. And so for us, we need to sometimes explain to business people, these are the skills that come out of being through the arts. You learn how to work as a team. I love that joke where they say, in business, we work together, it's a team. When we do it in school, it's cheating. <laughs> yeah, right right so we want to we want to bring our people together to learn and so doing a production being in the band in the choir whatever it is you're learning to work together as a team you're learning how to take something and take it from conception to completion and one hopes with a set of um, values that say i'm going to do my very best to do this I'm going to hope that it's going to be the very best when I'm done, et cetera. So I'll give you an example. We were out in Washington recently for National Arts Advocacy Day. And we always ask the aides that we meet with, what's your art form if you have one? And generally they do. 
Well, this young woman in the office said, I was a dancer and she was going to stop there. And I said, no, no, no. You have to complete the story. And she said, I was a dancer. I learned how to learn from different managers, right? Different choreographers who were putting stuff on us. They were doing it at a speed that I had to learn to take information from all sides and quickly. If I didn't understand it, I had to re-engineer it, right? right. I needed yeah. to go work it back and, and build it then back to what they wanted. I learned the discipline. I learned to perform, etc. And she says, that's why I think, she said, I'm very successful as a legislative aide because of those skills that I learned as a dancer. You know, that's so interesting because, you know, we shifting it back over to the tourism side, you know, yeah. U.S. travel has been trying really hard to, as an association, give those of us in destination marketing better stories, better tools to to tell our side of the equation. And one of the most fascinating things, and we get getting back to money, but they say that something like 40% of Americans that start in a hospitality field first, and regardless of what career they go on to, make more than $100,000 by the end of their career, a year. And they're saying that the skills you learn by being in service to the consumer, you know, thinking fast on your feet, solving problems, making people laugh and smile, those are the skills that take you anywhere. I mean, you could go off into rocket science. You're still, you still, wherever you go, those Absolutely. those first jobs, and I think you're saying the same thing with the arts. That dedication and attention to detail that you learn playing piano, dancing, painting, whatever it may be, serves you long term. Absolutely, and you know, as a former burger flipper in my first career, in my first job as <laughs> yes. a 16 year old, right? I completely agree with everything you said, and I. Anytime anybody wants to denigrate that job, it's like, no, no. you don't understand. Yeah. That's where we all learned our work ethic. You know, if we didn't have it going in, we're going to learn it coming out. And that was really important. And I think these things remind us that we're not human silos, where there's this tourism piece of us and this arts piece of us and this other. It's all of us together. It all benefits um, whatever we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. As a society. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the National Creativity Network and how people can connect with that. Because obviously, I mean, those of us here in Wisconsin, you know, are connected to your daily emails and to what you do through the Office of Tourism and the Arts Board. But from a international perspective, the National Creativity Network has some great platforms and, and opportunities for people. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So... Back in 2010 is when the National Creativity Network began. And it began, as luck would have it, through Wisconsin in that Sir Ken Robinson, who I referenced before, came to speak for our report on Arts and Creativity Task Force. And when he came, he brought with him the folks from Oklahoma, and that will become important to the story in a minute, but he was looking to start a foundation. And then the Kirkpatrick Foundation in Oklahoma invited a few of us from Wisconsin, from New Jersey, from a, a number of states to come and to start talking about what would that look like. And it ultimately became the National Creativity Network. The National Creativity Network is about imagination, creativity, and innovation in education, culture, and commerce. 
somebody wants to go online, they can go to nationalcreativitynetwork.org. Okay. Now, what's funny about all that is the National Creativity Network is actually for the United States, Canada, and Mexico. So it's really North American Creativity Network. But the National Creativity Network fits into an international movement, right? So there's a thing called the Districts of Creativity. And that set of districts is about 11 of them now from Shanghai to Brazil and is home-based in Belgium. Now back to the story about Oklahoma. Oklahoma is the, the only United States District of Creativity. And this becomes because of Sir Ken, right? He was working with the districts of creativity and he was working with Oklahoma and he connected them to one another. What's really cool about this movement is you find out about schools that are doing things differently. You find out about science breakthroughs. You find out how origami is helping engineering. What's nice about it is we hear about and get to experience the very things you and I've been talking about today, where imagination becomes oh so important to the future of not only our places, but our planet. And so the National Creativity Network puts out a set of articles every Friday that do just that, captures video and quotes and articles from everything from neuroscience and the brain to technology and science and to the arts and humanities for that matter. And again, to sign up for that? Uh, yes, you do. And it's free. And it's on the National Creativity Network site. The section of that is called blogs. And actually, you can read them right there if you want to experience them before you sign up. Very cool. All right. Time for the bonus round. Go for so, it. <laughs> so not to fall victim to profiling or anything, but okay, what is an arts guy like you yeah. doing being a co-founder of the Wisconsin Science Festival? <laughs> Tell me how that happened. <laughs> So I was reading about the World Science Festival, which is in New York, and had things like Bobby McFerrin explaining physics through music. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then, of course, it was just about the time the Institutes for Discovery were coming online here in Madison. And so uh, the article I read in the New York Times, I blasted to whoever I could think of on the campus. And of course, it's like taking a seed and putting it into very fertile soil. And so it hit the soil. And while it wasn't going to make it for the opening of the institutes, people thought, yeah, let's get, let's get going on this. And so a couple of things were important. First, we called it the Wisconsin Science Festival because we didn't want it to be the Madison Science Festival masquerading as the Wisconsin Science Festival. Right. We really wanted this to be statewide. And because this concept, Science Festival, is explaining science through the arts and the arts through the sciences. And what a really wonderful thing because science wants the visibility of the arts, right? The arts are everywhere. And that's the thing we have going for us. The arts people want the credibility of the scientists, right? right? Everybody says, oh, the scientists, those are learned people. They know some things. And the arts people want some of that credibility as well. 
So we started after it. And then the first year got it up and running. And then the second year, guess who came a calling was Sir Ken who came <laughs> to tell his tales of school and creativity, etc. And when he came, it, what was lovely was the reaction when it was brought up because they knew I knew him. So I was to explain what he was all about. But the reaction was, oh, that's great. He's so controversial. And I thought, oh, controversial? And yeah, people hate him in K-12 education because, of course, he's upsetting the apple cart. Absolutely. It turned out that there were a thousand people on a Sunday morning who turned out to the Institute for Discovery to see him. It was a, a mind-blowing situation because the very person who said, oh, they hate him, had to look across the audience and go, well, there's something here. <laughs> there's something going on here. Absolutely. Now, to say it, we are up to the ninth year of the festival this year, and there are more events outside of Madison than there are inside. Very cool. And so it's just a way for people across the state to engage with the sciences and the arts. I'll brag a little bit on our, our science festival. In the second or third year, it received a Phi Beta Kappa award for the integration of arts and sciences. So that's pretty Congratulations. Cool. That is very cool. Yeah. And for those who are unfamiliar with, uh, with Sir Ken, you need to go on the TED site or YouTube him because uh, several of his talks are out there and, and uh, it really makes you think. And in a whole different mindset, which is exactly what you and I have been talking about for the past half hour, and that is we have to view arts, creativity, innovation, the intersection with tourism, and economic development, I think through different lenses. And I think that we've identified that through Destinations International with their new lexicon of the tourism language that, that we need to start changing the way we communicate the value of what we do, that we are a community service yeah. and it's not heads and beds. It's about residents. It's almost exactly parallel to, I think, the conversation that you're evolving on arts and culture. Absolutely. And I yeah. think from the perspective of the arts, nothing is more supportive than, and we've had this for every tourism secretary that has come through here from Moose all the way to today. Each one of them understood that the arts had value. You know, Moose used to say, we've got enough tractor pulls, we need more arts. And what's really important about it is they understand the arts for the arts and what they do related to human expression. And then they can speak to the economics. Yeah. And let's understand that coming from a guy whose name is Moose to say we need more arts, that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. <laughs> is that a guy named Moose says more arts, please. He absolutely does. <laughs> he did. Hey, George, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on this podcast. It's always fun to, to hear your stories and share great ideas. Uh, especially with such a great friend. So thank you once again for joining us on DMOU. Thank you for inviting me, Bill. It's been a pleasure. You bet. That's it for this edition of the Resurrected DMOU. Tell your friends and peers that we are back, and we look forward to sharing, as we said on the original website 15-some years ago, innovative ways to tell people where to go. Thanks again for our sponsor, our friends at Digital Edge. They provide DMOs a knowledgeable, innovative, and fresh approach for reaching and engaging event planners. Sign up for their ever-effervescent blog at digitaledge.marketing. 
dmopros.com is where you're going to find links to the Z News, our knowledge bank, videos, blogs, and more, including our video testing service for DMOs called DMO Vision. That's DMOPros with a Z. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.